Today's episode is sponsored by News Voice. As we talk about frequently, there is an enormous danger to democracy from media consolidation, and News Voice has come up with a response to this problem. News Voice is a website and app for iOS and Android, which you can access for free when you go to newsvoice.com best. And it gives you a personalized news feed by aggregating a mix of mainstream media sources, international sources, and independent media sources. It's meant to be a completely open and democratized source of news that lets you get every side of the story. So go download the app for free by going to newsvoice.com best. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the confirmation process of Brett Kavanaugh, his stance on several critical issues, and his threat to small-d democratic values and separation of powers in the federal government. Clips today come from Ring of Fire Radio, The Diane Reem Show, The Bradcast, The Real News Network, Democracy Now!, The Green News Report, a new source for the show with an awesome title, Boom! Lawyered, Off-Kilter, Thinking Cap, and the Trump cast. Where are you in terms of seeing this process, this nomination process, as legitimate? I mean, you know, I I can't help but think, I mean, I've had this uh, problem with the Supreme Court, frankly, since since Bush v. Gore. But um, we're now entering, you know, even a, a a darker period, it seems to me, where the process, never mind the way they adjudicate, the process seems to have been to have lost all legitimacy in some respects because of Merrick Garland. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think you can you can certainly carbon date it to Bush v. Gore. You can carbon date it, and I think um, Republicans do carbon date it to to the borking of Robert Bork. You know, you, it, it depends on where you want to set your your sort of start clock. But I think that there has been a general consensus that the process is bad, it's getting worse, you know, the the death of the filibuster, then the death of the filibuster last year uh, for uh, Neil Gorsuch. So so it depends on what metric you're using, but I, I don't think you're wrong to say that everybody has completely lost confidence, um, not just in the idea of the court as a sort of impartial, apolitical arbiter of balls and strikes, but also how we even choose justices in the first instance. And and I do agree also, I think, with the premise that if you can't get over Merrick Garland, and, and I can't because I don't think there was a principled reason to block him, then everything that comes after feels tainted. And we certainly saw that last year with Neil Gorsuch, where, you know, Democrats on the committee were just like, this is crazy. Why are we even here? And uh, I don't think that's been alleviated. I think if you look at how the Kavanaugh hearings are playing out, just the amount of public disgust, the amount of protest we're hearing in the chamber, the amount of resistance and coordinated resistance by Democrats in the Senate, I think absent what happened to Merrick Garland, nothing of the sort would be going on. So I I think you're quite right that even if you bracket questions about Trump's legitimacy and whether he should be in a position to be picking a justice right now, those are a separate set of issues. I think you're completely right that it just feels like the process is so broken that everybody's lost confidence. 
And and I I mean I'm compelled to say that that Merrick Garland was not blocked. Merrick the the issue like you know the the Republicans certainly could have voted against Merrick Garland, right? They had the votes if they wanted the votes. The issue is they never even gave him a hearing. And you know that to me seems you know you can uh, you know they can they they can compare it to uh, what happened to Robert Bork. They can say. We don't like the way you voted in the hearing. Uh, we don't like the reason why you rejected Robert Bork. But there was not even a rejection of Merrick Garland here. There was a denial of the president's ability to even nominate. Right. Because if you don't do a hearing, there is no nomination there. If there's if there's no one, if there's no opportunity to vote against the nominee, there is no nominee. I think that's right. And I think, and I think you and I have talked about this in the past, Sam. I, I think that this was about power and not the Constitution. This was a determination by Chuck Grassley and by Mitch McConnell that he was simply not going to get a hearing or a vote. In many cases, he didn't even get courtesy meetings. And that was based on this pretextual argument that there's some kind of Biden rule that wasn't the Biden rule that said that you don't even get to appoint someone in in your last year of your presidency, notwithstanding the fact that something like a third of presidents have appointed someone in their last year of their presidency. So the whole thing was a pretext. And you're quite right. They did it because they could. But but here's the part that's really tricky. I think that Democrats that could have punished them at the ballot box for that behavior, and that was the expectation, that Democrats would be incensed, that this seat had been held open for a year, that, you know, John McCain and Ted Cruz were openly running in the fall of 2016 on the principle that if Hillary Clinton were to win the presidency, they would hold that seat open for four or eight more years, and Democrats failed to do the thing they needed to do to check that. And so I think in a weird way, this turns into a massive gamble that paid off because Donald Trump said when he ran for office, he said, you're going to hold your nose and vote for me if for no other reason than I have a vacancy on the Supreme Court and you need me. And by about a two to one margin, voters showed up for him over Hillary Clinton. And so I think, you know, you're right to be affronted, but I also think that Democrats were completely complicit in letting it happen and completely complicit, by the way, in failing to run for office in the Senate, particularly on the principle that this seat had been held open and that that was an affront. So I think it's really complicated. They did it because they could, but I think in a sense, Democrats let them. Garrett Epps, last July, you wrote in The Atlantic that Brett Kavanaugh is, quote, devoted to the presidency. What did you mean, and what did you see this week? Well, going back to last July, the moment the nomination was announced, you could see from his resume, uh, we've never had 
I'll say never had a a judicial candidate, a Supreme Court justice candidate, whose career has been more completely involved with executive power and particularly the White House. Kavanaugh is entirely a product of the District of Columbia, uh, born here in D.C., went to Georgetown Prep, uh, has done virtually his entire legal career here, most of it either in service to the executive branch or as uh, an attorney with Ken Starr uh, involved in kind of uh, investigating and prosecuting a Democratic president. So executive questions are very much on his mind. Now, what did we see this week about that? Well, I thought in some ways the most powerful testimony that Kavanaugh gave was talking about what it was like to work in the White House on the day of September 11th and in the days after September 11th. And he said several times that George Bush came into the office immediately after the attack and said, this will never happen again. He said President Bush came in every morning and said, this must never happen again. He was obviously transfixed by the spectacle of the executive branch mobilizing all its resources in an attempt to uh, defend what it saw as national security. And I think that has profoundly deepened his allegiance, and I, I use that word consciously, to the executive branch as the most important uh, and powerful branch of government. But does that take away from his belief in the judiciary and the power of the judiciary? I have not seen overwhelming evidence that he is really uh, a fan of judicial power. He is certainly, in the years since going to work for President Bush, he has talked a good deal about how possibly some of the precedents that hold presidents to account are wrongly decided and that we need to provide presidents perhaps with a complete immunity from criminal investigation while they're in office. Uh, that's a pretty radical position. You know, I haven't heard many people enunciate that. Any other judges share that view? Well, I, I'm sure there are because the, uh, deference to executive power is a very important part of you know, what would be called movement conservatism or the conservative legal movement uh, since the 1980s. Um, and the idea of the unitary executive, the idea that the president has complete authority over the executive branch and thus, for example, could not be prevented from firing the uh, special counsel even by congressional legislation. That's a, that's a, a fairly uh, standard executive uh, uh, conservative idea. But Kavanaugh embodies it in, in a very strong form. If Judge Kavanaugh had been nominated under George Bush say. Would the hearings have been this contentious? Would he have been considered such a radical nominee? Well, I I think there are three parts of that. And I think the first thing to understand is that Kavanaugh really is extraordinarily conservative, even within the spectrum of conservative judges. He is someone who's given every evidence uh, of fairly lockstep allegiance to, you know, the agenda of the conservative legal movement, whether it's in the area of executive power, uh, affirmative action. Uh, but, you know, Kavanaugh is a very, uh, a very smooth, well-trained, well-spoken, intelligent person, uh, who has not, uh, made any, any kind of obvious mistakes, but he's extremely conservative. But the second part of it is that would make this nomination contentious under any circumstances is what we've been talking about. This, this, this remarkable long, you know, decades long involvement 
with the executive branch and this devotion of his career to the service of executive power. Kavanaugh has kept coming back uh, during the hearings, like, I am an independent judge. The judiciary is independent. But his resume does not suggest independence. Contrast it with with Anthony Kennedy, whom he's replacing, right? Kennedy had an extraordinary record. He he had been a small-town solo practitioner running a small an office in Sacramento, California, on his own, beholden to no one, who, as a favor, really, worked with Governor Ronald Reagan independently from outside the administration to help him with some tax measures, uh, and in return was named to the to the bench by President Ford as a gesture of friendship to President Reagan. He never was a service, a servant of any politician. He never worked for any politician. He never was an employee of the executive branch. He was independent. uh, And, you know, love him or hate him, you knew that he made up his own mind. I don't see anything like that in Kavanaugh's resume. You wrote at uh, at Salon this week that Republicans seem to have a strategy of promoting Kavanaugh not as a hard right jurist here, but actually as a champion of 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 women of progressive issues, in, including a fight for equal rights for women. How did that work out? Did anybody buy what Kavanaugh and the Republicans were selling along those lines this week? Well, I have to assume conservatives don't buy it, or they would be balking at this nomination, right? <laughs> Um, if you were to, if you were a space alien and you just dropped in and were watching these Senate hearings for God only knows what reason, mm-hmm. you know, you would get the impression that the Republicans think of Brett Kavanaugh as a liberal lion. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> all they do is they talk about how anti-racist he is, how pro-equality the cases that he's ruled on that they've highlighted are the the three or four extremely rare ones where he sided with working people or oppressed people or people, you know, trying to get health care or anything like that. Again, the tiny minority of his cases, um, they, they barely go a minute without talking about how much he loves women and how he's practically a feminist and he's hired all these female law clerks and whatnot. It's been kind of surreal because... Obviously, they don't believe a word of it, because if they actually thought he was any of the things they were presenting him as, they wouldn't have nominated him. Right. Uh, And obviously, I don't, you know, there's no indication that the Democrats believe any of this either, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, As the days have gone on, the the Senate Democrats have gotten fiercer and fiercer and less patient um, in their questioning of Kavanaugh. They've They've basically been accusing him of being a far-right jurist, which is accurate. They've, they, I don't think they really pulled their punches, um, you know, some more than others. But even Dianne Feinstein was particularly aggressive mm-hmm. in, in painting him as a threat to women's health and safety, which he is. Uh, you write that Kavanaugh had explained at length uh, historically that abortion rights specifically had been reaffirmed many times in the Supreme Court's history, uh, but he failed to explain how he felt about it. 
Um, that sounds similar to him telling uh, Senator Susan Collins of Maine during his meeting with her that uh, he believed Roe v. Wade was settled law, but he seems to have failed to mention that the Supreme Court can very easily, very simply overturn settled law any time. Uh, as, as you heard in that, uh, clip with, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, his approach seems more akin to the Republican activist that he spent years as versus a legitimate legal thinker. Uh, am I right about that? Is there any reason to believe at this point he is anything but an activist on these issues? And, and, and I guess the second part of that question is, is it possible that someone like, Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski could possibly believe his nonsense about settled law. Yeah, I mean, he's using the same rhetorical trick that other Republican justices have used in the past, which is if you ask them how they're going to vote on abortion rights, they launch into a history lecture about the history of abortion rights. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's akin to me, if you ask me, who I'm going to vote for for president, and I said, well, the current president is a Republican. It's basically the same thing. Not saying who <laughs> you know? you're going to vote for, just just making some observation. and ma- Yeah, and hoping that implies. <laughs> right, that you're going to vote Republican. Yeah, and, 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 and it's ridiculous, but, um, you know, what he does is he just does it every single time you ask him, and eventually people give up. And, and yeah, that's what he's trying to do is imply that he's going to uphold Roe. He clearly has no intention of doing it. That's why the leaked emails were such a big deal. I think that one thing that, um, you know, reproductive rights activists have been highlighting all this week and, and some feminist journalists is that Kavanaugh's views on these issues are not about being pro-life at all. Um, you know, I think a lot of people hide behind that and they say it's about fetal life and whatnot. But he used language during uh, a, a, a moment when Ted Cruz was asking him questions where he stigmatized the use of contraception mm. um, by calling it abortion-inducing drugs, which is flatly false. And, and that's, a, that's an anti-choice term. That's a, mm-hmm. a religious right term that's used to, to stigmatize women who use the birth control pill, IUDs, and, and other female-controlled kinds of contraception by equating the prevention of pregnancy with the termination of pregnancy. And I think that that really kind of drives home here that, like, Kavanaugh's views on these issues aren't really rooted in some kind of, like, you know, precious attitude about fetal life, but really are about this notion that women can't be trusted to make their own decisions. And, And the other thing I would say on that is, and I reported on this at Salon, is there is a case from a few years back where Kavanaugh was actually asked to rule on a case that involved two, three women that were disabled that had, the government had forced medical procedures on them without consulting them. Mm. And two of the women had been forced to have abortions against their will. And Kavanaugh ruled in favor of the government. He (laughs) ruled against these women. So again, I cannot underline enough that this is about the fact that he just does not see women as the custodians of their bodies. He also uh, was using the right-wing phrase uh, throughout the week, abortion on demand. Uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal attempted to call him out on that uh, for it. Um, 
What's wrong with that phrase? And what what does it actually tell us uh, about Kavanaugh's mindset here? Is that the same thing? Uh, I mean, does it just underscore that he is not a legal thinker here, but as much as a uh, Republican activist on these issues? I mean, that's a half a breath away from Rush Limbaugh's drive-by abortions phrase, frankly, it seems to me. Yeah, exactly. That phrase is a meaningless phrase, and anti-choicers use it because they want to invoke misogynist stereotypes about women making demands. They want to imply that women who have abortions are demanding unreasonable B-words, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And that's just ridiculous. Nobody says... Um, you know, wisdom tooth extractions on demand. Nobody (laughs) says vaccines on demand. I I mean, it's abortion is given out in the same way that all other medical procedures are given out. You consult with a medical professional. um, You make that determination with, you know, the help of a medical professional. You don't just walk into the store and ask for an abortion. Has uh, Susan Collins of Maine and, and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, they, they both have previously said they would not seat someone on the court who would over, would be the vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. But both seem to be pretty open to seating Kavanaugh. Uh, neither of these uh, women are on the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, so we haven't gotten to hear from them uh you know, this week. But have you seen or heard any response from either of their offices, uh, you know, if any of the testimony this week may have moved them one way or another in their in their thinking? No, um, I don't think that there's any reason to expect that they're going to respond till the confirmation hearings are over if they were going to. You know, I, I, I would say this. I, these hearings are in a lot of ways and should be understood as an elaborate theater to give Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski cover to claim that they're pro-choice while voting essentially to overturn Roe versus Wade. The whole charade that they're doing around Kavanaugh trying to conceal, use these bad faith arguments to pretend that he's not going to immediately vote against abortion rights the first chance he gets, that's all just so that they can go back to their voters and say, well, he told me he thought Roe was settled law. How was I supposed to know? I don't even know how effective that is, but that's the whole point of this entire charade. Um, so, you know, some pro-choice organizations are running ads this weekend in newspapers in Maine and Alaska highlighting the email where Kavanaugh reveals his true feelings about Roe, mm-hmm. saying it's not settled law. Um, and, and hopefully that will that pressure campaign will have some effect. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... 
you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does. Does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. In what ways has Kavanaugh shown his love for executive power? Kavanaugh has said that we should reconsider U.S. versus Nixon, which was the unanimously decided Supreme Court decision that said that Nixon had to hand over tapes to the Watergate committee, and that resulted ultimately in his resignation. And Kavanaugh has, um, well, very interesting. A quote from Kavanaugh is that the president may, and I'm quoting now, may decline to enforce a statute that regulates private individuals when the president deems the statute unconstitutional, even if a court has held or the court would hold the statute constitutional. That puts the president squarely above the law. And the Constitution gives only Congress the power to make the law and gives the president the duty to carry out the law or enforce the law. So by saying, by Kavanaugh saying that a president has a right to ignore a statute that has, pa- that has been passed by Congress, if the president, if Trump thinks something's unconstitutional, creates a state of fascism where the president is the only branch of government with Congress being irrelevant and the court de- uh, deferring to to the president, which is very, very frightening. So in the hearings themselves, uh, that issue also came up. Uh, just give us a quick idea as to how it came up and, and uh, what, uh, what, what did uh, they have to say about it? Well, one of the, this, this relates to the failure to turn over all the documentation. And yes, part of it, part of the objection of the Democrats, who, by the way, were exemplary and standing firm and, uh, and trying to get all the information because it's been unprecedented the way there's been a sanitization of these documents. Um, it wasn't just about the 42,000 pages that were laid on them last night, the night before the hearing, but also they have not received about 97% of the documentation relating to Kavanaugh. And in particular, for three years from 2006 to 2009, he was staff secretary in the Bush White House when torture and surveillance and detention and many of these very, very critical issues were were discussed. And yet this is a total blank. after the photos at, at, uh, from Abu Ghraib became public, John McCain, who was, of course, you know, tortured in Vietnam, attached a an amendment to the Detainee Treatment Act outlawing cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment, which was already against the law, but but re- reiterating that. And Bush signed the Detainee Treatment Act, but attached a signing statement saying that I'm only going to follow the parts of this law I agree with. And Kavanaugh was squarely in the middle of helping to prepare that signing statement. So here we have, and we have during the war on terror cases, Kavanaugh as a judge on the Court of Appeals, in almost every case, deferring to the president in deciding uh, whether detainees who were 
unlawfully held and if they were sent back to their home might be tortured, um, deferring to the, the president in issues of detention, habeas corpus, blindly deferring to the executive. And this is very, very worrisome. A president such as Trump can say we're at war, even if Congress hasn't authorized it, and Kavanaugh would put his rubber stamp on it. Actually, this brings me to the next issue, which is the issue of international law, which I haven't seen mentioned that much yet, except, of course, in your article. Um, should, uh, in what way does this issue of international law relate to the issues that you're talking about? And um, should we be, at, or should the Democrats be paying more attention to this? I think they should, quite frankly, Greg, because our laws clearly outlaw torture. The Convention Against Torture, which is, which is a treaty the U.S. has ratified, making it part of U.S. law under the Supremacy Clause that says treaties shall be the supreme law of the land, and the Torture Statute, and the War Crime Statute, which classifies torture as a war crime, outlaw torture. And yet, if Trump decides, and Trump has said he wants to torture, he wants to bring back waterboarding and worse, uh, waterboarding is clearly a form of torture. The United States tried, convicted, and hung Japanese military leaders after World War II for waterboarding as torture, which is a war crime. So I think it's very important that the Democrats understand and question Kavanaugh about his statements about international law and how international law is irrelevant even though it's part of our law under the Supremacy Clause. And Kavanaugh confuses international law with foreign law. International law are the treaties we've ratified and customary international law, such as the prohibition against torture. Foreign law is the law of France, the law of Germany, the law of Egypt, and yet he confuses the two. Of course, we're not bound by foreign law, the laws of other countries, but we are bound by international law insofar as it has been incorporated into our law, and he has had nothing but disdain for international law. I'd like to turn to our third guest. Robert Weissman is president of Public Citizen. Last week, uh, Public Citizen issued, a, quote, an analysis of Judge Kavanaugh's opinions in split decision cases and found that during his 12 years on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, uh, uh, Judge uh, Brett Kavanaugh decided or wrote an opinion against the public interest 87 percent of the time in split decision cases dealing with consumer, environmental and worker rights. Uh, Bob Weissman, welcome to Democracy Now! Uh, I wanted to ask you about some of those decisions uh, uh, in labor cases, uh, for instance. It's a remarkable record. And these are obviously you, you chose to concentrate on the actual public record, as the Republicans have been urging everyone to do. Uh, and you specifically dealt with those cases that uh, that uh, the judge was a deciding vote in a three judge panel decision. Right. So Judge Kavanaugh sits on the appeals court. The appeals court hears cases with three judges or sometimes the full panel en banc. Uh, a lot of cases that come up really aren't very close. So they're decided three to zero. And they don't tell you typically that much about what a judge thinks. But when the judges split, we know that there's some difference of opinion. There's actually a chance for the judges to go one way or the other. And in those studying those cases, you can really figure out uh, over time what a judge's philosophy is. And 
We looked at all of Judge Kavanaugh's split decision opinions. Um, it's more than 100 of them. And the results were astounding, as you say. In the, in the employment and worker rights area, he decided 15 times for employers and only two times for employees, both times in relatively obscure issues. So almost always for the employer. Same thing for the environment. 11 times for corporations or against entities suing to block environmental protection. Only twice for the side of clean air and, and clean water. And the same thing for consumer. 18 to 4, always, almost always for business, very rarely for consumers or the public interest. What about in issues of the environment, Rob? You know, he is hostile to the Environmental Protection Agency. So there were a couple cases uh, where he appears to side for the environment. Um, but actually, when you look at him more carefully, not so much. But overwhelmingly, 11 out of these 13 cases, he decided on behalf of, of polluters. The cases that come before the appeals courts in the D.C. Circuit tend to have to do with the operations of federal agencies. And a key question is, how much do you give the benefit of the doubt to the agency when you're examining whether or not what it did was legal? Judge Kavanaugh has an elaborate theory about that, uh, which is interesting. But in practice, it works like this. When corporations are suing, zero deference to the agency. In the case of the Environmental Protection Agency, he's often hostile to the agency, mocks their decisions, and says what they do is completely irrelevant uh, and unjustified. When an environmental group sues to say, hey, the agency wasn't strong enough, then he is very deferential, very generous in understanding of the agency's expertise. And we see that time and time again on a whole host of environmental issues, including the ultimate issue, which is whether or not the Environmental Protection Agency has the authority to regulate, to regulate uh, greenhouse gas pollution. Um, and he, there's, re- there's real reason to assume that he thinks under the Clean Air Act, the answer is no. And in, uh, pol- in cases dealing with police abuse or human rights abuses, there were nine cases that were split decisions where he was a deciding vote. And in all nine cases, he ruled against the victims and uh, for the alleged abusers. That's right. Well, seven out of seven. And again, these are cases that come frequently before the appeals court in D.C. So he has a bunch of these cases in cases of police abuse. And these are civil cases, not criminal cases. In cases of police abuse, the question is, was the police officer operating reasonably enough that they should be immune from being held liable? Every time for Judge Kavanaugh, the answer was yes. The human rights cases involve um, sometimes complicated legal issues which are worth talking about. But at the end of the day, he always sides against the victim. Um, And a couple of those cases had to do with a lawsuit you all have covered extensively, which had to do with ExxonMobil's operation in Indonesia uh, and villagers in Aceh suing for really horrible human rights abuses conducted by the Indonesian military on behalf of Exxon. Judge Kavanaugh ruled in two separate cases regarding that. First saying, look, if the government says, the U.S. government says there's a foreign policy consideration here, case closed. We're not even going to look at it. Secondly, getting actually to the, the legal question presented by a different set of villagers about the same matter, he said they should have no right to sue in U.S. courts, first, because the abuses occurred overseas, but secondly, and crucially, he said that the relevant statute, which is known as the Alien Tort um, Statute, doesn't apply to corporations. So you can sue human beings under the alien tort statutes, but you can't sue corporations. Um, so corporations, it turns out, aren't always people. They're not people for Judge Kavanaugh when they might be held liable. 
And it, if you look across his record, you see time and time again, this theme that comes through. There's one standard that applies to corporations, and it is very favorable. And there's a different standard that applies to human beings as they're trying to get their rights recognized, either as consumers, workers, um, breathers of, the, of clean air, or victims of human rights abuse. Rob Weissman, what about the case that um, Public Citizen had before uh, Judge Kavanaugh? Right. So we were trying to bring a case challenging the auto safety agency for not adopting a strong enough standard as it was required to do by Congress. And this case was decided on the legal question of standing, which is the, the legal term for whether or not we had a right to bring the case in the first instance. And what the courts say is you have to, to establish this idea of standing. You have to show that you're directly affected, that you've got a real stake in the, in the argument. And we said, look, you've got more than 100,000 members. This inadequate rule from the auto safety agency is going to make it more likely that people are injured and killed. None of our members want it to be more likely that they're injured or killed. And some number of them, we can't say for sure, but some number of them are likely to be in auto accidents as a result of this inadequately, inadequately protective rule. So Judge Kavanaugh said, not good enough. He said, it's, you can't say there's a chance that someone, there's a low chance that someone is going to be injured. You have to tell me the exact person who's likely to be injured. And he said, it's not good enough that you put together 100,000 or a million people and say some number of them are going to be injured. You have to show the identifiable person. Well, of course, that's an impossible standard to meet when there's a risk of something happening in the future. That's a relatively low probability for any individual, but a near certainty for the whole population. And, and Judge Kavanaugh said, too bad. You can't bring a case in that circumstance. The remedy should be that the victim of the auto accident that's going to happen in the future they sue the auto company afterwards, after they're injured, maimed, or killed. You've also and that's raised- a doctrine that's not just, a, and again, that was a big deal in that case. That actually mattered a lot. But even more important is this idea of standing when consumer groups, citizen groups, environmentalists, workers, others can bring actions to challenge agencies for not doing the right thing. And Judge Kavanaugh's answer is it is extremely hard for groups like ours to bring lawsuits against those agencies. On the other hand, Regulated business corporations, they pretty much always have the right to bring a case under Judge Kavanaugh's reasoning because they're so apparently directly affected by the regulation. And Rob Weissman, uh, briefly, uh, you've raised concerns about how judge uh, how the judge might rule on uh, net neutrality issues. Clearly, the Trump administration's FCC has done away with net neutrality. There are states now passing their own net neutrality uh, provisions. Uh, what is your perspective on his views on uh, an issue like that? Right. Well, we don't have to guess because he did rule on net neutrality issues and he has an unbelievably harsh and overreaching decision. He said that the FCC's net neutrality rules, um, and now, of course, since rescinded, uh, were illegal and unconstitutional. So what he said was, first of all, it was impressive to see how he characterized net neutrality, and this mattered. He said the net neutrality rules would wrest control of the Internet from, from private parties and hand it over to the government. Of course, what net neutrality actually does is try to preserve the way the Internet has always worked so that private corporations don't get the ability to, um, to censor it and to impose uh, lock control over it. But what he said was net neutrality couldn't be legal 
because it was an interference in the First Amendment rights of the Internet service providers, the ISPs, the cable companies and others, that they had a right to determine, he called it an editorial right, they had a right to determine what flows over the cable lines. So of course, it is no editorial decision for Comcast whether or not it's going to charge fees to Netflix in any sense that any re- thinking human being has about it. It's a business decision. But Brett Kavanaugh converted that into a First Amendment issue and said, therefore, it's unconstitutional for the government to proceed with net neutrality rules, at least absent showing some special market control by the cable companies. Senate Republicans are ramming through confirmation hearings this week for Judge Brett Kavanaugh, President Trump's U.S. Supreme Court nominee, in hopes of swinging the nation's highest court hard right and potentially crippling the government's ability to act on climate change for a generation. In 12 years as a federal appellate court judge, Kavanaugh compiled an extensive record of voting against federal regulations on climate change and air pollution in a number of high-profile cases. Well, of course, that's one of the reasons why he was nominated. Yet despite his record on his second day of hearings in the Senate on Wednesday, Kavanaugh claimed he's not against all regulations. I'm a skeptic of unauthorized regulation, of illegal regulation, of regulation that's outside the bounds of what the laws passed by Congress have said. We don't rewrite those laws. The executive branch also shouldn't be rewriting those laws. In other words, Kavanaugh doesn't believe the Environmental Protection Agency has the authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions that cause dangerous climate change. Well, that would be news to the existing Supreme Court. Exactly. He thinks that because back when Congress passed the Clean Air Act, it didn't explicitly tell the agency to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, it therefore cannot regulate greenhouse gas emissions. But wasn't the Clean Air Act specifically written to include any dangerous emissions that the EPA may determine in the future? Exactly. The law does have mechanisms to incorporate new emerging threats. That was Congress's intention when they wrote the law. Yes, but Kavanaugh believes the EPA cannot act on global warming now unless Congress acts. Unless they act to specifically rewrite the law. Exactly. The one that already exists. Exactly. The one that he would like us all to ignore. Exactly. Gotcha. Kavanaugh's confirmation would cement a hard right five to four majority on the nation's highest court, and that could have very long-term consequences on the federal effort for climate action. Including overturning what the Supreme Court has already determined regarding climate action. Kavanaugh's also indicated he'd obliterate another central tenet of environmental law, the so-called Chevron Doctrine or Chevron Deference, in which federal judges are supposed to defer to federal agency experts and scientists when deciding industry challenges to new pollution regulations. Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island on Tuesday slammed the coalition of right-wing dark money groups that he says are spending tens of millions of dollars to support Kavanaugh's confirmation. Lots of big Republican influencers are polluters who like to pollute for free. Big polluters clearly have big expectations for you on their deregulatory effort. To me, it's what corporate capture of the courts looks like.
irrespective of his personal relationships with black people or how much he loves the sport of basketball, the fact of the matter <laughs> the fact of the matter is is that Kavanaugh has shown through his through his uh, tenure through his career that he's not a friend to black interests. For example, there was a huge case out of Michigan Law School in about two thousand and. Three, I want to say, called Gratz v. Bollinger. And it was essentially about whether or not the University of Michigan's law, law school's admissions process was discriminatory because they had a quote-unquote affirmative action process in place in order to ensure diversity and in order to ensure that their entire school wasn't chock full of white dude bros. So at the time, Alberto Gonzalez, who was White House counsel, assigned Kavanaugh the brief, the De- Department of Justice brief, to soften the language around the administration's position against affirmative action. So he was part of the team that was supposed to make sure that the Bush administration's opposition to affirmative action wasn't seen as too harsh. And ultimately, the final brief said the administration shouldn't embrace diversity as a compelling government interest, should not embrace diversity as a compelling government interest. So frankly, I don't want to hear about how sweet Kavanaugh is when he plays basketball on the court with black kids or how he thinks it's really terrible that some black kids have to live in underprivileged neighborhoods when he's pushing policies that are going to do a disservice to those very same black kids he seems to care so much about or claims to care so much about. And this is really important because the Supreme Court could very likely this term hear a challenge to uh, affirmative action. And this is Kavanaugh signaling exactly where he is on that. And it doesn't matter how many times he's read To Kill a Mockingbird. He has taken an official position in his judicial opinions and in his time as a litigator in the White House that, as you said, in uh, diversity isn't a compelling government interest. And that's those are important constitutional uh, code words. And, um, you know, the the fact that I think he cited um, To Kill a Mockingbird and kept going back to Brown versus Board of Education is his way to try and uh, signal that, in fact, he's not going to rule against uh, racial justice issues when we all know that, well, hmm. Yeah, we all know he is. Polling has now consistently shown that he has the lowest public support of any judicial nominee to the Supreme Court since Robert Bork, uh, what feels like a million years ago. Um, and and uh, polling by the Center for American Progress Action Fund that's actually very specific to some of the constitutional crisis issues mm. that we might be on the precipice of facing if Kavanaugh is confirmed, find that a, a large majority of Americans have really, really serious concerns about Kavanaugh's views on whether, for example, presidents can be subpoenaed and, and for obvious reasons. Right. I think that's right. And, uh, you know, I think uh, we found that even, you know, before some of the most dramatic stuff came out. But like, I, I, you know, I think what is what has happened at this point is American people have, you know, come to terms with what Trump is and who he is and the fact that he's fundamentally corrupt and we have you know, a big problem is sending in the White House and they desperately, desperately 
want somebody to be a check on that power. And what now you have is the Republican Congress not only has not been a check, they're trying to strip the courts as a check as well. And everybody knows it. This is an open secret. This isn't kind of a subtle thing when you pick somebody that says, you know, uh, the unanimous decision on uh, U.S. versus Nixon that made Nixon turn over the Watergate tapes was wrongly decided. Uh, that's not, you know, that's not subtle. That's kind of a big signpost. And, you know, I think it, it's almost like uh, some kind of post-apocalyptic, you know, novel or something where every hour or so uh, the coverage of the Supreme Court hearings gets interrupted by, you know, say – an anonymous New York Times op-ed by a senior Trump official saying that Trump is insane and there's a resistance from within the Trump administration silently preventing nuclear war at all times. And, oh, yeah, by the way, we should let Trump stack the court with this Supreme Court justice who will let him do whatever he wants. Right. And it's like it's kind of this split screen between total insanity and Congress kind of blithely pushing through more insanity. For anyone who is listening and is hearing the phrase constitutional crisis and who's rolling their eyes and going, geez, come on, progressives, stop using all of this histrionic language. That's not what this is. It's just a guy you don't agree with on some stuff. What would you say to anyone who's not persuaded that that is what his confirmation could bring about? I I think this is people are drastically underestimating how quickly this could happen. You could have a situation where he gets on the court Within a month. And shortly after that, uh, you know, the special counsel subpoenas Trump. Trump says as he, Trump, as he says he will, challenges the Supreme Court. Kavanaugh is the fifth vote to squash a subpoena. Trump then turns around and right after the election fires attorney general, which, uh, Grassley and Graham have now signaled it would be okay for them to do. And then puts in an acting attorney general who fires Mueller and char, one by one tries to fire all the prosecutors of all the different pieces and at Trump's direction. And that in turn goes to Supreme court. And again, five, four, they said four judges say, actually that would make the president above the law. And that is ridiculous. And five judges would say, well, yeah, actually the president's kind of above the law. Sorry. And that's it. The cover up worked. Uh, the president's above the law. The investigation's done. President moves on to things like shutting down voting rights. And, you know, there we are. If that's not a constitutional crisis, I don't know what it is. And then all bets are off and we really don't have any more checks that can actually be meaningful. Well, right. And exactly. I mean, if now what, what happens if the president is found to be illegally, you know, say the president starts, you know, sending intimidation, uh, tactics to voting booths in 2020, you know, in minority neighborhoods. Well, we already established that the president can kind of do whatever he wants, right? So where are we now? You know, and this is, this is not far away. I mean, this is one vote on the Supreme Court away on, on a lot of this stuff. And it's, you know, the dominoes start falling real fast. What comes next? We are not done, as I mentioned up top, with the confirmation hearings. There's a lot more still to come. But um, fast forward to the end of the actual hearings and the dog and pony show oh. um, or seal or pug or whatever show um, that that is. What comes after that and what should people be watching for? 
Well, yeah. I mean, to be clear, like, uh, we are definitely not at the end of the road yet. Um, there could definitely be, uh, fireworks ahead. Um, I think, you know, one, one thing that goes through my head is the, uh, Affordable Care Act repeal where for year after year after year, they all voted, yeah, let's repeal the thing. We can't wait to repeal it. It's going to be great to repeal it. But then when the rubber hit the road and it came time to actually take it away, suddenly it didn't sound so great. And, uh, I still think there is very much a chance that when, as we get closer to the rubber hitting the road, the idea of Collins and Murkowski putting on a fifth vote to overturn Roe v. Wade or to just gut it step by step, which it's already being gutted little step by little step, but drastically accelerate. Um, you know, the idea of putting on a judge who really, I think they know, you know, will jump at, the opportunity to gut the ACA. Uh, I think as this kind of crisis around, uh, you know, President Trump's criminal liability, his corruption, his kind of mental stability accelerates, you know, the idea of putting somebody who puts him above the law becomes more real. I think there's a real chance for, uh, you know, the American people to weigh in and come out in force and say, no, this has to stop. This has to stop. And, you know, go back to the drawing board, find somebody who is not kind of, you know, this giant rig system, you know, pre-baked uh, fixes in kind of guy. And, you know, frankly, do it after the election, too, because um, the idea of just, you know, keeping continuing to drive off this cliff when we can see it coming a mile away uh, is just ridiculous. This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you who signed up to support the show on Patreon for as little as a couple bucks a month. I want to remind you that we've been making a lot of behind-the-scenes changes here, all geared to serve you better. In addition to increasing the number of episodes we produce each month, the members are now getting more than ever before as well. Uh, One of the brand new benefits of being signed up with the show on Patreon is that all patrons now get to take part in a weekly poll I've just started to get input on upcoming topics. I put the first poll up this past week, given a few options of topics that I could cover going forward, having no idea, of course, if anyone would respond. But within 30 minutes, it was clear it it was such a success. I knew I'd be doing it every week going forward. And the best part is that the poll didn't come out as I would have thought. And the topic that's been on my back burner for months got the highest number of votes. So it's getting pushed to the head of the queue. So just like that, democracy in action, and the show's better off for it. And to be clear, those polls are going to be available to patrons starting at only the $2 a month level. Now, as for the members at the $6 level, they'll be getting a bonus show with a couple of bonus clips that didn't fit in today's episode, one in which more details given about how Kavanaugh was likely chosen specifically to protect Trump, and another which is an extension of one of my favorite clips in today's episode. The clip you just heard from Off Kilter was originally about 14 minutes long, and I thought it was great, but it had to be cut down for time, so I'll be playing the missing pieces for the members. So if you want to support the show, join up on Patreon and help steer the direction of the show show for just $2 a month, or sign up as a full member to get all of our bonus content as well. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bestofleft. Thanks so much for your support. So, 
So if you're a, a listener and you're very frustrated about this process and you don't want Kavanaugh to get on the bench, but you are looking at the numbers and you're worried, like, what do you recommend people do? What can they do right now? I mean, we have we are asking people to call their senators and to make it abundantly clear that they need to vote no on this uh, nominee. Um, we had been asking also for people to push for delay, and we will continue to do that. There is going to be a period of time between the hearing and and a vote. We need everyone who cares about this to call their senators. I mean, you know, one of the lessons of the Trump era is that civic engagement actually does matter. I mean, I used to think, oh, yeah, call your senator. Like that was like the tagline that all of our organizations use. But actually, I mean, senators are telling us, well, we got 55 calls this week or we got 103 calls and that's not the same as compared to X and Y. This stuff actually really, really matters. And especially for senators that need a little bit of shoring up uh, on the courage side to actually make it. But I would say across the board, people should be making those calls. They should be organizing others to call. And look, obviously, we also want people to be mobilized to vote in November. We have had a deficit on the progressive side, and we have to be honest about this, that we are like almost three decades behind on the kind of infrastructure to support and protect an independent judiciary. The right has been mobilizing on this. The Federalist Society Heritage Foundation, they've invested a lot of money into really getting conservative voters to care and gal- be galvanized on the courts. And when so when you had Roy Moore running for election in Alabama, you had Alabama voters say, you know, I don't really like Roy Moore, but boy, do I care about the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. You just don't hear that level of passion for the courts on the progressive side in quite the same way. And we are now at a tipping point where perhaps we've taken the courts for granted to be this backstop. We We cannot afford to do that anymore. And my hope is – that this fight will be at the very least energizing for progressives to put the courts front and center as part of the mandate for change and that we cannot take them for granted and that come November that we know exactly, you know, that the courts are a feature of why people are going to go to the polls. This fight is really truly about the soul of our nation. And it is the Supreme Court will have impact, as I said, on for, for generations. And we know that Gorsuch you know, was was also an important nomination. But obviously, Justice Kennedy had been a swing vote in so many cases that this vacancy carries a different profound kind of meaning for the tilting of the court away from civil and human rights in a more definitive way because of who Justice Kennedy was as a swing vote. The cameras on C-SPAN, at least, swing back and forth from this very, um, you know, studiedly civilized um, Robert's Rules style room to this, like these unruly margins where the protesters are. What is that? What does that look like to you? And I mean, is that atypical to have to have that um, that many protesters and, and that loud and disruptive? It's funny because on the Slate legal channel, uh, the Slack channel where we were talking about this, we were trying to figure out the under over on protests. And I said, you know, based on on Gorsuch last year, I'd go for three protests a day, you know, four. And that was just completely shattered within the first 
10 minutes uh, of the first, you know, we've never, ever, ever, ever seen anything like the numbers and, and, and maybe just worth flagging. I know at least on the first day, 70 people were arrested, say at the Capitol Police, uh, of which 65 were women. Here are actual women getting dragged physically out of the room, screaming, mm-hmm. you know, about their health care. Some of them are disabled. They're screaming about their bodies and their reproductive rights, and they're getting dragged out as senators roll their eyes. I mean, Virginia, the just the spectacle of we're going to talk in abstractions about women and reproductive rights and health care and the Affordable Care Act and pre-existing conditions and actual human American women who have stood in line to get in this chamber are screaming and holding up, you know, pictures of coat hangers. And it's just, again, the sort of id superego thing going on. It just melts my brain. Yeah. I mean, th- those those images are well worth looking at. I mean, be a hero, vote no. I mean, they they are um, incredibly powerful. I mean, it's like some of the images at the border that it finally talk about not normalizing, you know, just keep like disruption, disruption, just civil disobedience, um, never stop. And yeah, as the as the um, I mean, there's the normalizing. You're right. Like as the assembled, mostly white men in the room are looking down, won't look over or shutting it out. Well, I think that they are finding solace in their norms and their rules and the idea that we're supposed to be respectful. I mean, I think it was so emblematic. There are so many things that are so weird, but one of the things that to me was really emblematic of the problem was Chuck Grassley trying to cure the fact that the president was tweeting that it should be illegal to protest. And so here's Chuck Grassley being like, all right, I guess I'm going to say nice things about free speech. But they hate this because in their worldview, all the norms of how civil hearings are conducted are being shattered. But they're being shattered not because people, you know, hate the Senate or hate democracy, but they've just been, by virtue of everything that has gone on in the last two years and this ongoing process, by the way, in the Supreme Court to erode voting rights, to erode, you know, to to, to prop up gerrymandering, to uh, allow for just overt racial and 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 uh, 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 vote suppression. All of that is happening in the courts. And so when people take their actual bodies in and say, no, it doesn't work that the Chamber of Commerce wins every damn time. It doesn't work that you're eviscerating unions and calling it free speech. Uh, I can understand how senators who put so much stock in these John McCain notions of bipartisanship and civility and, you know, in during relationships that transcend politics. This is horrifying to them. But I think that what you're hearing is this just shriek of actual people who are saying, I'm here, I'm in this room. And, you know, you can call it normalization or you can just call it the comfort we try to take in our institutions when everything else is falling apart. But I think taking comfort in institutions that are part of the problem is becoming part of the problem.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Sam Cedar on Ring of Fire, speaking with Dahlia Lithwick about the fundamental brokenness and illegitimacy of our Supreme Court. Diane Rehm spoke with Garrett Epps about Kavanaugh's sycophantic allegiance to executive power. The broadcast talked with Amanda Marcotte about the danger Kavanaugh poses to women's rights and health. The Real News Network highlighted Kavanaugh's views on international law. Democracy Now! heard from Robert Weissman from Public Citizen on Kavanaugh's record on upholding corporate and government power while squashing the little guys. The Green News Report exposed a similar record on upholding corporations' right to destroy the environment. Boom Lawyered talked about Kavanaugh's record on cases regarding race. Off Kilter talked with Jesse Lee about the dangers of a Supreme Court that will likely do nothing to restrain the executive power of at least Republican presidents. Thinking Cap gave some tips on what we can do to resist the confirmation of Judge Kavanaugh. And finally, we just heard Dahlia Lithwick on the Trump cast discussing the protests surrounding the hearings and how they represent a fundamental breakage in the functioning of our democracy. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. I have just one last thing for you before I get to a voicemail. As we continue to keep our eye on the upcoming elections, here is today's Midterms Minute. And now for the Midterms Minute, a look at the candidates and races that you need to know about, shout about, and support to make sure we have a blue tsunami on November 6th. The primaries are over, the candidates are set, and now it's time to focus on the big picture. Democrats across the country, spanning the left side of the political spectrum, need to win, and they need to win big in many cases, to overcome gerrymandering. Everything we do between now and Election Day should be done while keeping the most vulnerable and disenfranchised among us in mind. So if you haven't yet, take a moment today to figure out how you are going to make a difference in these historic and critical midterm elections. We've included volunteer links and resources in the show notes, including the specific Swing Left page for the districts we'll be mentioning today. Right up until Election Day, we're going to be highlighting the battleground races for the U.S. Senate, House, and governorships so that you know where your help and donations are needed most. You can also view every swing district by state at bestoftheleft.com activism. Today we're talking about Pennsylvania, where the district lines were actually redrawn in February after the state's Supreme Court ruled that they were illegally partisan. This was a huge win against gerrymandering, and the new, fairer map gives Democrats a much better chance at picking up critical House seats in November. Pennsylvania is also one of five states with the biggest impact on the House majority and has a number of open seat races where incumbents aren't seeking re-election. Incumbents are tough to beat, so this is more good news in a swingy state. In Pennsylvania's 1st District, philanthropist Democrat Scott Wallace is facing semi-moderate Republican incumbent Brian Fitzpatrick, who has landed labor union endorsements. This district includes Bucks County, a suburb of Philadelphia, where Clinton won by just one point. The race is currently rated by the Cook Political Report as leaning Republican. Pennsylvania's 5th District is one of those Republican open-seat districts where Clinton won. Democrat Mary Gay Scanlon faces Republican nominee Pearl Kim in November. As of right now, this new 5th district seat is rated as likely to go to the Democrat. These candidates are simultaneously squaring off in a special election for the state's old 7th district after Pat Meehan resigned over sexual harassment allegations. Pennsylvania's 6th district also has an empty, formerly Republican seat. Democrat Chrissy Houlihan is facing Republican Greg McCauley. Clinton won here by more than 9%, and the race is currently rated as likely Democratic. Pennsylvania's 7th district is the third open seat battleground race in the state. 
Democrat Susan Wilde is facing Republican Marty Nostein, who was recently accused of sexual misconduct. Clinton squeaked by with a win here, and the race is currently rated as leaning toward the Democrat. Pennsylvania is also home to two battleground districts where Trump won, but Democrats have a shot. Democrat Connor Lamb won the special election for Pennsylvania's old 18th district in March by just 600 votes. But after the court's redistricting, Lamb is now running to win in Pennsylvania's newly drawn 17th district. His opponent, Republican Keith Rothfuss, is also an incumbent from a redrawn district. Trump only won here by 2.6 percentage points, and most ratings consider this race a toss-up. In Pennsylvania's 16th district, Democrat Ron DeNicola is facing Republican incumbent Mike Kelly. Trump won this district by 20 points, but Romney only won here by 5 points in 2012, which is why the race is rated as just likely Republican. It'll be tough, but a win is possible. And finally, it's worth noting that Pennsylvania Democratic incumbent Senator Bob Casey is up for his third term in November and has drawn the ire of Trump. His opponent is Republican Rep. Lou Barletta, who was on Trump's transition team and whose voting record is a parade of horrors. Pennsylvania's Democratic incumbent Governor Tom Wolf is also up for re-election this year, and thankfully his Trumpian opponent is a long shot. Both Wolf and Casey should be safe, but I think we've all learned by now to take nothing for granted. To vote in the Pennsylvania midterm elections, you need to be registered to vote by October 9th. Absentee ballot requests must be made by October 30th, and ballots must be received by November 2nd. Early voting is not available in Pennsylvania. As for your own state, it's never too early to check registration cutoff dates and absentee ballot request and submission dates. We highly suggest reviewing your state's important dates and voter ID laws at rockthevote.org as soon as possible to ensure you will be able to vote in the general election. Links to all of the information you heard today, as well as additional resources, are linked in the show notes. And today's Midterms Minute, just like every activism segment we produce, is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if making the blue wave a Reality in November is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting Democrats in battleground races across the country via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Hi, my name is Sarah Saunders and I live in Cool, California, and I was responding to the moving the Overton window question you had on your number 1207 um, show on healthcare, And I have a really weird story, and it would be real lengthy, so I'm going to try to keep it concise. But basically, I'm uh, 61 years old. I've always identified as a Democrat. I've always identified as a liberal. And I became so frustrated with the way the system was working that during the Bill Clinton administration, uh, shortly thereafter, when it, I just could not understand why I had voted for people and they weren't doing what I thought they should be doing and I didn't understand how I could possibly make a difference and I blamed everything on the Republicans and on um, you know their propaganda and all that and I just began to withdraw and um, you know I, I started playing more and more video games my husband and I met each other via video games um, and then he and I also got involved in medieval recreation through um, a group called the SCA, which was fun. But all of it was a way of just trying to avoid the world because it just wasn't panning out the way that either of us thought that it should. But being good people, we always continued to vote and we understood politics and we probably were more informed than most people. But anyway... 
uh, at some point in time in here, I had a friend who, after I made a comment about how I did not feel comfortable um, having things if other people didn't have things, said, well, you're a socialist. And I was kind of alarmed by them saying that because I didn't understand what that was. I'm a member of the working class. And to me, socialist meant like communist, which was had something to do with totalitarian governments and gulags and all that. So anyway... I'm just going along, going along with my life, and and I just feel more and more disenfranchised and alienated, and, you know, financially we're holding our own, but it it just isn't panning out, and healthcare was one of the big things, Um, and it was like, why do they have these plans in Europe, and we can't have them here? What are my kids going to do as they get older? I even went into a healthcare field largely so that if we lost our healthcare, at least I would have some understanding of what needed to be treated emergently by an MD and what we could deal with at home, or maybe some alternative methods of dealing with it. That's how desperate, you know, the situation was. And into this whole mess, you know, again, I vote. I always voted. I voted for Barack Obama. I was hoping and praying and very enthusiastic and thought we would get at least a public option, and that didn't happen. And again, I blamed Republicans and all of this. And and then came Bernie Sanders, and suddenly everything changed. And I understood, and I began to research, and I began to to come back into the world. And my husband began to come back into the world. And we understood that there was a chance that there were people that thought the way that we did that, you know, and, and I, I began to understand what socialism was. And we jo- joined the Democratic Socialists of America. My husband and I are both also now delegates to the California Democratic Convention, where there's only about 3,500 of us. So we're not real common and 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 we've done that in the last two years we've become so politically aware um i belong to a worker solidarity work group of the el dorado progressives um group i'm a a shop steward at my union and my union is actually the thing that started all this in a way because I just assumed that my union, the California Nurses Association, would not support Bernie Sanders just like the um, AFL-CIO didn't and the teachers union didn't. And I was just kind of, you know, thinking, well, they won't support him either. And they did. And not only did they support him, but they were strong supporters and they supported those of us who were involved in supporting him. And that led to me becoming a shop steward, which we call nurse rep, and uh, working towards Medicare for all. And, you know, you have to keep trying and you have to attack, go at it from a multifaceted angle. You can't just depend on electoral politics and you, you can't just depend on revolution. But I feel more hopeful and I feel more like I have found a way of being and that I understand now that other people feel this way and that maybe all of us together, we can make a change. And yeah, I think that Overton window has moved way to the left. Thanks for your wonderful show. I really appreciate hearing it and good luck to you. Bye.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And I, I don't have much of a response to uh, Sarah's voicemail, other than to reiterate something I've said before. I, I have a, a, a strange quirk about myself. Uh, regarding how and when I cry. I don't cry at sad things, generally. Horrifying things, no, not really. Uh, Sad, rarely. Happy and inspiring things is what gets the waterworks going. I don't know why. And listening to Sarah's voicemail definitely gave me that tingly feeling uh, in, in my tear ducts. So, she was responding to the question about the Overton window and it moving. And, and, you know, I I was asking if anyone had felt a change in their own position on universal healthcare. And her answer was sort of a, it was like an answer to a different question. And frankly, I think it was a better question because I'm going to ask now, if you have a story like Sarah's and you have gone from either sort of a, uninvolved, uninspired person who followed politics or or a person who didn't really follow politics before. And if you have transitioned the way Sarah has and and gotten involved and gotten empowered and gotten inspired, I would love to hear your story. I think we would all love to hear your stories that that like, that's the kind of story we need to hear right now. I I would love if so many people called in with stories like that, I could play one in every episode running up to the election. I mean, today's episode, like nearly every episode, is an indicator that uh, things are not going well. And we we need more positive news. We, we need more uh, signs of hope. We need signs of uh, victories or the hope of future victories. And, and frankly, the only place that comes from is the power of people standing up and speaking up and making demands. And I think that you know, we have the election coming up and some positive may come out of that and we'll all see how that goes. But in the meantime, it would be great to be reminded as often as possible about how people are getting active and getting inspired themselves and how they've gone through a transition over, you know, whatever period of time, whether it was in the last six months or two years or six years or 10 years, I would just love to uh, to hear those kinds of stories. So if you have one, please call in the number to dial 202-999-3991. Of course, you can leave comments or questions on any other topic as well. So keep those comments coming in. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.